Hopefully you can settle in wherever, again, wherever you're watching from. And right now we're in a series this fall called Dear Wormwood. It's all about, uh, and if you listen, you can, there's, you can listen back if you want as well. It's all about spiritual warfare, the Satan, the powers, the principalities. But more than that, it's about the way in which the Satan or the adversary in our moments really wants to deceive humans and in particular wants to kind of suck Jesus followers away from the kingdom of God, these subtle little ways in which he does that. And it's been a great time, I think, great time, as good as it can be talking about the adversary, obviously. But I do think it's been really good, the feedback and just some of the wrestling through some of these concepts and ideas and how the Satan works in our moment, especially in the Western world in Canada. And what I want to do is I actually want to read a quote from the Screwtape Letters. We've been doing this each and every single week. Uh, a, a quote from Screwtape, who's a senior demon, writing to a junior demon named Wormwood and how they're going to deceive this human. This is what Screwtape says. He says this, My dear Wormwood, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and one only since he was converted and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you are about? Why have I no report on the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you realize that unless it is due to indifference, it is a very bad thing? Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, then the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches." Brilliant way of putting it, I think, is screw tape is like, okay, if this guy's going to go to church, then we at least want him to bounce around and kind of be the church critic. Screw tape goes on. The reasons are obvious why we want this to happen. In the first place, the parochial organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not of likings, it brings people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy desires. Isn't it interesting? Screwtape the demon understands the power of the church, that it's people from all sorts of backgrounds, places, spaces, even ways of thinking. But yet when they're under in together in unity, it's actually dangerous to Screwtape and their plan. He goes on. The congregational principle, on the other hand, makes each church into a kind of club. This is what Screwtape wants to do. Let's make it a club. And finally, if all goes well, into a faction. In the second place, the search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. What he wants of the layman in church is an attitude which may indeed be critical in the sense of rejecting what is false or unhelpful, but which is wholly uncritical in the sense that it does not appraise, does not waste time in thinking about what it rejects, but lays itself open in uncommenting, humble receptivity to any nourishment that is going. You see how groveling, how unspiritual, how irredeemably vulgar he is, speaking of God. This attitude, especially during sermons, creates the condition in which platitudes can become really audible to a human soul. There's hardly any sermon or any book which may not be dangerous to us if it is received in this tempter. So pray bestir yourself and send this fool the round of the neighboring churches as soon as possible. Your record up to this date Wormwood has not given us much satisfaction. So I know that's a bit of a long quote there. That's actually almost the entirety of the 16th letter that Screwtape writes to Wormwood and how they're going to deceive the human. 
And I find it just fascinating. This one is fascinating to me. Letter 16 is probably one of my favorites just in what it means in how the adversary uses the church at times to be distracted, indifferent, and disunified. You know, you can, you can sense it here that Screwtape doesn't necessarily want the church to go away as much as he wants the church to be in continual conflict with itself. This is what Screwtape wants. Screwtape loves division. Screwtape loves disunity. That's what he wants, not just in the patient in the story. That's what he wants for us. He wants to, us to float from community to community. He wants us to be dissatisfied. And it's interesting that even the church can even be a way sometimes in which the enemy or the adversary works. Because Screwtape here wants the patient to float around, live indifferently, and ultimately drift away from the kingdom of God because of maybe even some of the pain that he's seen and experienced within the church. Now, I know we all have backgrounds and we all have different experiences. There, there are people that come into our gatherings at Praxis that have had bad experiences with the church and I totally, I totally get it. I do think, again, it's a way in which screw tape would want to divide people and ultimately is a way in which could co- co- those bad experiences could coerce people away from the kingdom. I just wanna let you know, this is n- nothing new. Um, Since the very beginning of the church, there has been issues and problems that the church has had to work through. But above all, there's been this call to unity. So what I want to do here is I just want to look today at a passage in 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is just going to kind of be an old school line by liner. So if you open up, we're just going to go line by line here. Because if you know the story of the church in Corinth, there's a church in in a first century city named Corinth, brand new church. And there are all sorts of problems, all sorts of things going on in the community. You know, sometimes people will idolize the early church and say things like, we just need to be more like the early church. And then if you want, just read 1 Corinthians. It'll take you about half an hour and you realize we just romanticize and idolize the first century early church. They had their problems and they had their division. And yet there's this call to live in unity and that's what I want to look at today because I do think screw tape is on a mission to destroy us, not by us just going away, but us to continually be at odds with each other. I'm not talking necessarily just in our church. I just mean the church, the, the capital C, the big C church across the world, being at odds with each other and what that does to people and to lives. I think this is a primary way, again, the adversary wants to get in. And so Paul is dealing with a brand new community. There's all sorts of things he's dealing with. And one of them is actually leadership factions. There's division. There's some people we're going to see in a second here. They like one leader and not others. I mean, if you read later in the letter, there's things about idols and food sacrifice to idols and people sleeping with each other that shouldn't be sleeping with each other and what people are doing with their bodies and time and money and all sorts of stuff that's going on in this community. There are deep, deep issues. So this is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
Ultimately, Paul here wants the community that he's dealing with and shepherding, he wants them to agree and be in unity. He wants them to be together one mind in, in one mind and in one heart. You know, Paul is writing a letter back to them. He had spent, I think, close to 18 months with them and then had left and now is hearing stories of divisions. And it's interesting here that Paul says, I appeal to you, like you the people. Notice he doesn't say, I appeal to God that you all agree, but puts the onus on the community in Corinth. This is actually what he does. It's interesting how we can tend to over-spiritualize things. We want God to unify us. We say things like, God, just unify us, make us one, which I think he does. But oftentimes we take out human responsibility and human agency as though we have a part to play in this. Paul says, I appeal to you. I don't necessarily think it's up to God to make us unified. I think he wants us unified. But I think it's up to us in surrendering our wills and surrendering our lives to each other that this happens. Paul doesn't say, I appeal to God by my authority. He says, I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was talking to the community with the context of his authority in Jesus. And I think actually there's a big, there's a massive difference between these two things. Because in the community here, there are splits. The Greek word here, I think, is schisma, uh, where we get the word divisions. Uh, And these are not theological divisions, but it seems as though in this community there's a power struggle. There's splits. This word denotes a tear in a fishing net. You actually read the same word when the fishing net is teared in Mark chapter 1. And so Paul, I mean, this is hard for Paul. And the division that he's seeing because Paul sees the church as a non-competitive attitude that sets aside all hint of power or power play in politics within the church. I appeal to you that you would be the ones. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of Jesus, that you would agree that there's actually responsibility on us. When the adversary wants to get in, when Screwtape wants to get in, there's an onus on us to be unity creators. Then he goes on, verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now we don't know fully who Chloe is, great name by the way, but we don't know who this person is and we don't know who her people were. She was most likely an outsider to the community in Corinth, we think, most scholars think that. And again, Paul planted this church in 49 AD, most most scholars think, and was there for 18 months and then after that left. But in Acts 18, you actually see that from there he went to Ephesus and he received this news from Chloe's household on what was happening in Corinth. He began to actually hear the bad news of the division that was happening within them. Now, isn't it true? This is totally true. It's absolutely true. Bad news always seems to travel faster than good news. You notice this? No matter how good the church is doing or how well we are in unity, all it usually takes is one thing or two things. I mean, even if you've just been watching the news the last few weeks with celebrity pastors, you know the church could do all of these good things and then there's a couple bad things and bad news travels fast. And the bad news of some of the things that were happening in this community in Corinth actually traveled all the way to Paul, that he actually heard about it so much that he had to write this letter back. Verse 12, read with me. What I mean, Paul says, is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or others say, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow 
Christ. Now, this may not mean a whole lot to us in our moment of time. Who are these people? You're probably thinking, and I totally get that. But there is context within this that connects all of these phrases here that Paul uses to Corinthian culture. You got to understand that the Corinthians in their moment were obsessed with status and recognition and self-promotion. And this went hand in hand with a certain kind of rhetoric in the early Roman world. There were orators, there were literally people who spoke basically for a living. They would give speeches or uh, get up and speak in front of people for a living and they were called sophists. And these people would speak to the crowds, and if you know anything about Greek culture, with great philosophy and intellect. They would get up and they would speak and they would woo the crowds and people would be amazed. They were like they, the movie stars of our day in their time. Now, it must be noted that in classic rhetoric, uh, classic rhetoric had its aim not only on the art of persuasion, but also on the art of effective communication of truth. Like, like classic rhetoric wanted to obviously communicate truth. In Corinth, though, it was infiltrated and influenced by a kind of rhetoric that was more concerned with winning than with the truth. Sound familiar, my brothers? I mean, we'll just think about our moment anyways. That's for another series, probably another sermon series at some times. But in Corinth, it was mere performance. These People would get up and speak, and they did it not to necessarily communicate truth, but to woo the crowds. So Corinthian sophists cared more about wooing the crowd than truth, and they also had disciples. This wasn't just a rabbinic thing. These sophists would have understudies that would see how they communicated. I say all of this to say this. I say this to say that Corinth was highly intellectual and had the best of the best orders, and there was also factions among these sophists. There was divisions among who was great and who you would choose to follow and who you thought was the best. Uh, New Testament scholar Anthony Thistleton, he says this, that the sophists, they behave like athletes or singers. Their oratorical flourishes and spin and greeted with a storm of applause, shouts of unseemingly enthusiasm. The result is vanity and empty self-sufficiency. They become intoxicated by the wild enthusiasm of their fellow pupils and truth is sacrificed to what the audience wants to hear. And so you have that context in the Greco-Roman world. In Corinth, the sophists were a thing. They were more interested in impressing you than telling the truth. And now, these same kind of factions that were happening amongst the sophists were now happening in the church. Some were saying, I follow Paul. If you know Paul, he was the planter and the the apostle. In 2 Corinthians, it says that uh, they said of Paul that his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech, his speaking is of no account. Basically, his writings were really theologically weighty, but he couldn't speak well in front of people. But then other people said, I follow Apollos. Apollos was actually a friend of Paul's, a leader in the church. Paul mentioned him often in 1 Corinthians 3, he mentions him where they were one in their work. But it was also known of Apollos that he was well-spoken, he was sophisticated, and he was good in front of people. So some are saying, dude, I love Paul, the dude that planted this thing. Others say, I love Apollos, the guy who sounds good. Then others say, I follow Cephas. Uh, Cephas in Aramaic is the name for Peter. 
And there's probably potential that some in the Corinthian church wanted the Gentile believers to convert to Judaism. So some are saying, I follow Paul, the planter guy. I follow Apollos, the dude who speaks really well. Because, you know, I think about even Western culture now. We love people that speak well. Others are saying, I follow Cephas or Peter. And then there were even some that said, I follow Christ. And of course, all of us want to say, I follow Christ. But it's interesting in the context of this is that maybe an over-spiritualized kind of answer, yes, I follow Christ, and maybe not a yielding to some of the human leaders that were in the church. At any, at any rate, there were these fractions within the community. So verse 13, Paul uses Jesus as an example. Is Christ divided, he says? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Is Christ divided? The answer is no. Was Paul crucified for you? The answer is no. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, no. Paul is showing here that Jesus now is the example. So verse 14, I thank God, Paul says, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I love what Paul says, I don't even know whether I baptized anyone else. Now, of course, here he's not saying that baptism is not important. Tonight, we're going to have a baptism. It's going to be amazing. What Paul is doing is he's emphasizing that this is not about him. And we were baptized into the name of Jesus. No apostle, no other human being, but Jesus. So verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says here, I didn't come with eloquent words of wisdom. I came with the gospel. The word wisdom here in Greek is the word Sophia, where we actually get the word sophist, that group that I was just talking about a few minutes ago. And opposite of the sophists, Paul comes with the truth of the gospel. And you know what? For a lot of people, it doesn't sound like the amazing guys in Greek culture in Corinth on the street corners. This message sounds incredibly foolish because it talks about God becoming king through death, that Jesus rules and reigns through death. It's all It's all about Jesus, that this story is completely flipped upside down. And Paul says, listen, amongst all the division that we're seeing, I'm not trying to be like these people. I come with you, come to you with the gospel. This this message that comes across almost foolish. This is not about eloquent wisdom. This is about the power that is the good news of Jesus. Now, let me just say again that Wormwood wants the church divided. Wormwood wants these splits or these, this schisma that we read about in 1 Corinthians and you read about it in other churches and obviously this is something that the church has experienced over the years. And you know, I think if anybody kind of got this, Paul would have understood the idea of factions and being torn apart. Think about it. We actually learn in Acts 18 that Paul wasn't just an apostle, but for his day job, he was a tent maker. I can imagine Paul day by day making these tents and preparing these tents for people. And he probably had in his mind, I can just imagine, what happens when there is a tear in the product in the fabric. If there's a tear in a fishing net, right, like we read about in the Gospels, this word schisma, you lose all your fish and you lose your livelihood. 
It becomes, it be, the net becomes unusable. I know this isn't rocket science, but just think with me. And I can imagine Paul making these tents, understanding that if there is a, a faction or a schisma within the tent that he's making, it's unusable. And Paul, as a tent maker, would have seen firsthand, and he ultimately, probably part of his job, we don't know this for sure, but probably part of his job is repairing these tents that had been torn apart. And I think as Paul is sitting there and probably seeing this in his day job, he understands what happens when there is disunity in the church. We are called to be unified brothers and sisters and drawn together. And, you know, we talk a lot about the Lord's name being taken in vain. You hear people say, you know, don't take the Lord's name in vain. My question would be, what does that even mean? Is it using Jesus' name in an, in a, you know, in an inappropriate way? Well, I'm sure maybe that's part of it. But, you know, the biblical idea of taking the Lord's name in vain, it's defaming the name of Jesus with how we live. This is what it was for the people of God in the Old Testament. They took the Lord's name in vain when they didn't live obediently to God's will in the world. And when we as the church live divided, and when we let the enemy, like screw tape, in and have his way and get us divided, we are ultimately taking the Lord's name in vain. Screw tape wants to divide us. Jesus wants to bring us together. This is what was so mind-blowing about the early communities in the New Testament of different races and backgrounds and places. And you get even, as I've done more study on the church in Corinth, you got people from all over the place coming rich and poor, which were never together in Greco-Roman culture. This eclectic group of people putting on display what the gospel is by being together, by showing the world who this God is with people from every background, demographic, social status, whatever, coming together under the rule and reign of God. And my prayer for us, as we talk about screw tape and the adversary and what the adversary wants to do, let us be aware, friends, let us be aware, brothers and sisters, that the enemy wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy our relationships, our communities together. And we need to be spiritually aware of this. And so my prayer for us is that we would be unified. We wouldn't let the schismas uh, take root. And I'm super thankful for our community, a very healthy community. But I think about the church as a whole, and I think about the call and mission that God has on us for such a time as this in our city and in our world. We cannot let screw tape in. Because he wants us to be indifferent and he wants us to be divided. And so I want to pray for us today, wherever you're watching from. Um, pray for our community that we would be spiritually aware. We, know, we would know that there is an enemy that is wanting to devour. Pray protection over our community, but also pray that we would live in accordance to God's will. And it would be people that would live in unity together. I think there's, a, there's responsibility on your end today and my end to live in such a way that this is how we bring glory to God. That uh, even Paul in his language would use language like we're become, this is how we become the gospel, the good news to the world, is when we dwell and when we live in unity. And so, Father, I pray right now for everybody that's watching in our community. I'm so thankful for our church. I'm thankful for the scriptures and what you're leading us to. Unify us, I pray. Draw us together, I pray. 
and help us to be aware of an enemy that is devouring. The way he wants to do this is right here within us. And I pray that we, like shepherds, would be aware, God, of the wolf, the great wolf that wants to come in and kill and destroy. Unify us, I pray. Draw us together in our differences. I pray that you would draw us together in in the things, again, that many of us are very different, but that's the point, God. You've brought us from different places and spaces to draw us together as the church together. And so, God, we just ask that as Paul prayed to the church or wrote to the church in Corinth that there be no divisions among them, I pray that we would live out your love and light in the world and you'd have your way within us. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been so good to be together, brothers. So good to be together today, brothers and sisters. And thanks for tuning in online and joining us live here online. Uh, if you're in town, if you're in London and you're part of our community, we are joining together tonight and celebrating together. I hope you could join us for baptism, for uh, music and worship together. It's going to be a great time. You can register at mypraxis.church. We also have Advent Daily happening right now, and it's a great little resource that we're releasing each day throughout Advent. Uh, just a little reflections in audio form and podcast form that you can find. And two weeks from today, we have our Christmas gatherings at Byron Community Church. And we're excited about that. It's going to be in the evening at 5 p.m. And so hopefully you can join us in a couple weeks from now uh, live and in, in, in real time. And as well, we're going to have some Christmas Eve services online. We're just looking ahead and looking forward to this season. But we pray you have a great day. I pray grace and peace on you. And uh, hopefully we'll see you tonight. Grace and peace. <music>